Anyway, oh, Metallica Master of Puppets, we are kicking off part two of the Stranger Things 8 and 9 recap, review, analysis, whatever I call it these days. Uh, if you can hear a rumbling in the background, that is my fan. No, I will not be turning it off. And if you can hear some clickety-clackety of my iced coffee, no, I will not be turning that off, I guess, as well. Because I'm recording this in the week in which the UK is like 30-odd degrees and normally in other, you know countries built for that sort of weather though it, it's it's better you know you're, you're built for the weather whereas in the uk all the houses and things are built to insulate heat so when it gets above 25 degrees we die Amazing. anyway um this is going to be a long long pod so i won't jibber jabber on anymore let's uh skip right to it shall we so we left off part one uh just before Oh, sorry, just after Eddie said to Dustin, are you ready for the most metal concert ever or whatever it is, metal show ever. So we're going to press play at 22 minutes and 52 seconds into episode 9. Let's go. I kind of like how in, like, so just after that we go to um, Robin, Steve and Nancy walking through the forest. Robin Hood, Little John, walking through the forest. Um, yeah, they're walking through the forest. And just as a sort of like, you know, a use of like characters. In, normally in these sorts of scenes where people are like walking and talking, you know, if I don't know if you've ever like walked in a line with your friends and stuff, but you can hear what the people at the back are saying. And always in films and TV shows, you know, they seem to like choose that moment as... The right time to have a DMC. <laughs> and you know, like not that they would care if Robin did overhear or anything, because they're all quite close and stuff, but <clears throat> you know they sort of the whole will they won't they thing with Steve and Nancy kinda comes to a head here, you know, like Steve actually opens up a little bit. So the fact that they allow Robin to like run off into the uh the distance to, you know, sort of scout ahead and make sure they're going the right way is just like a a good narrative choice for like Robin's time instead of her just awkwardly third wheeling in earshot of this conversation. Like I say, the, their friendship and everything, it wouldn't matter if she did, but you know, it's it's just sort of nice that they thought, okay, what can Robin be doing at this time where she's not just there awkwardly third wheeling? So I guess the point I'm making is the Doofa brothers are really good at just like sort of covering a lot of different angles so there aren't just any spare parts laying around not really doing anything. But they always give someone or the people something to do, which is just nice. A real nice subtle bit of filmmaking when um, the man with many faces from Game of Thrones is talking to Yuri and trying to inspire him to, um, you know, stop screwing about and stalling and actually get the helicopter up and running so they can use it to, you know, evac the prison easier. Um, the camera angle on well, on both of them, this again, I'm talking about status. Status. So usually, chase and status. Tabs. Um, no, sorry. <coughs> Good lord. 
Anyway, status. The camera angles. I've mentioned this before in other pods. Lower camera angle looking up at a person normally gives them a higher status. So both characters in this sense have them. Matey has it. The man with many faces. I can't remember his real name. The old the prison guard um, who's friends with Hopper. He, the Russian guy, he... The angle is lower on him because he's he's in the position of power in this scene in the sense that he, you know, holds the gun. He's sort of getting Yuri to do what he wants. Ergo, he's the guy in charge in this scene. However, then Yuri also has the same angle on him, tilted, you know, from below looking up towards him. Because the things the prison guard is saying to him is like, I've heard stories about you and you achieved all these things and more and led your men valiantly and X, Y, Z. So we get to sort of see him from this low angle, having all these like um, praises and things said towards him. So it's the camera angle is reflective of that image of him. The the image, all those things paint in your mind about like all the things he's achieved in war. The camera angle is then a reflection of that. So it's easier for the audience to be actually be able to look admirably upon this man. That's from you know up until this point has been a bit of a shithead. Uh, so it's just a cheeky little trick there. So the Doof- like I said, the Doof brothers think about everything. I really like that with Max trying to um, sort of bait Vecna into following her. I like the way that we don't see Vecna. It's all done, you know, we don't like sort of flash into the upside down and see what he was doing, you know, like he was just chilling in the front room of that house. Like, was he watching like demonic TV? What was he doing? Um, but I like that it's all from Max and Lucas's perspective. So they just have those like UV bug zapper lamp things that they're carrying around. Because it, it it makes it a little bit more uh, mysterious in terms of... Because if we can't see Vecna, then we don't know if he's going to respond to her. We don't know if he's going to take the bait so it ups the stakes. But then it also makes it a little bit scarier as well. Because when the light of that... There's some cool angles as well so like there's the one of the interesting ones is where the lamp that they've used to sort of identify where Vecna is is in the foreground and then Lucas and Max are in the sort of background of it and then when that when the light fades in the lamp on that shot and then he moves across the room and Max Max's lamp that she's holding lights up that, you know, that's how we know he's crossed the room. We're like, oh shit, is he about to just try and grab her right there? And the music starts to build up in the background. So they start layering a bit of tension on it. And then it just turns out that he's, you know, making his way upstairs. But I do think that it it uh, maintains an atmosphere of mystery and things. If, if we can't quite see him and all we have to go on is like the light of these lamps. Plus then as well, it actually leads to Max having a really... Uh, emotive monologue about her brother later on when she, you know, actually does finally bait him properly. Jonathan and Will have a lovely, sweet moment. Um, they really do. It's really nice. It Again, it's awesome dialogue because, you know, he, he does effectively say, uh, you're my brother and I'll always love you no matter what kind of thing, but they never outwardly address... Um, the fact that Will is, you know, homosexual or bisexual, or whatever, it's it's obvious that he has a thing for um, uh, Mike. So you know, there's obviously some sort of uh, sexuality thing going on there, and they never outwardly say, "Hey, it's okay that you're gay" or whatever. Um, he just goes like, 
I love you no matter what. I'm your brother. You can come to me for stuff. And it's all sort of hidden under this um, retelling of uh, a story from the childhood where he got a Lego stuck up his nose. So it's it's just awesome dialogue because it's not, you know, it's not patronizing to the audience. It's not overly explicit in the sense of like just outwardly saying this, that and the other. So it's just it's good shit. And it's a very sweet, nice moment. And both the actors do a, a great job of of conveying what needs to be conveyed. There's, you know, there's not a lot in the way of, um, you know, really artsy sort of camera angles or anything because it doesn't need to have them. It's just a very nice, simplistic, in a good way, uh, <clears throat> scene with a nice little score in the background. It's just good. Good, good wholesome stuff. So moving on to Max's little sort of monologue to Vecna, where she's trying to bait him and she starts talking about Billy. There's a real nice shot that starts, so she sits down and just sort of, you know, addresses the lamp, you know, because that's sort of the only kind of physical representation she has of Vecna right now. So she sits down, sort of cross-legged, and the camera starts high, and then real nice and smooth and slow, just like m moves its way down to sort of level with her and then just starts to zoom in close to her sort of like um stepping into her you know her personal bubble um so it's just a good way of bringing the audience into that intimate moment you know it's it's done nice and smooth and gently because she's speaking very sort of um uh what's the bloody word she's speaking very vulnerably you know from the soul uh so the the camera just taking its time to get there but ultimately sort of crossing that threshold of like not invading her personal space but you know stepping into that um sort of intimate environment uh it's it's just a good way to do it you know if it just cut into it it might feel a bit too abrupt so the way that it moves us slowly into it is just a good you like i say it's a, just a nice slow gradual step into that intimate moment with her and just to comment again on some of the camera angles, so when we get to see Eleven sort of in her, like, I don't know what it is, like that trance state thing where everything around her is black and she only sort of sees, like, the people or the objects they're immediately around. Uh, it, when Max is talking about her monologue, the camera basically just zooms in on her because, like, where that's her that's her space you know that when when all the room and the floor and the sky and everything around her is in complete blackness that's like a levens space so it's only important for us to sort of see how she reacts to what's happening in that moment um which is something that the the Duffer brothers have done throughout you know whenever we have 11 in that moment whenever we then have to sort of concentrate on the dialogue or the reaction of some of the people that she's observing we'll cut to them in the real world and then when it's in that sort of blackened trance state thing, it's always her as the focus, which makes perfect sense. Uh, and then <clears throat> we cut to a little bit further on in the monologue. Um, it's sort of the end of the monologue, and the shot is just a big close-up that tracks round um, Max's face a little bit because it's you know the sort of the, the the crescendo or crux or whatever of the monologue. So it's important to sort of just focus on her face. And then when Lucas uh, starts speaking, uh, you know, and, and starts sort of being a bit mean to Max after she's just been very vulnerable, he starts sort of poking at her. And, it, you know, it becomes obvious that it's Vecna 
possessing him. But there's a real great shift that they do where as Max starts to sort of back away because she's sort of being hurt by the things that Lucas is saying, the camera tracks behind, like pans and tracks sort of behind her head and then back. So it focuses on Lucas over her left shoulder, pans behind her head and then focuses on Lucas over her right shoulder. And there's a sort of shift in the music and the tone becomes a lot darker, even though he's already said a few things that are a bit sort of mean to her, like uh, normal people don't fantasize about people dying or whatever it is he said. Um, Just that shift, you almost expect to see him with those white Vecna eyes the moment it tracks from behind her head. But there's enough of a shift both in the musical tone... um, the tone of uh, the actor who plays Lucas's uh, sort of performance and things that we are, it, if you weren't aware then that, you know, she, she's sort of been mind flayed or whatever by Vecna and he's presenting Lucas to her in this twisted way, then you probably should be aware of it right then. And then if you're not after that pan behind the head, then it does become like blatantly apparent that, you know, uh, it's not Lucas talking, it's Vecna messing with Max's head. But it's just a cool little sort of um, bit of camera movement that they use to create a complete tonal shift and, and really sort of make the distinction between what Max perceives as reality and sort of realizing that it's actually Vecna's false reality he's projecting into her. Ah, now we're moving on to phase three, which is Eddie Munson. Playing Master of Puppets. Bam! Bam, bam, bam! Bam, 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 bam! Master! Master! Oh, can't fucking wait! So, without further ado, I'm going to press play. So, I just want to first off say, like, kudos to, um... Ah, the bloke who plays Eddie, I can't remember his name. But his, like, because I play guitar myself, right? And one of the biggest pet peeves of, I think, any musician, or even any, like any doing of a thing it could be reloading a a firearm uh you know playing an instrument um any anything that involves like or doing any sort of car mechanics you know anything that involves any sort of like you in the real world you would have to know what you're doing to be able to sort of show people you can do it quite often in films or tv shows you see people that blatantly have no idea what they're doing and were just told for the sake of the story that they are you know a mechanic or a firearm enthusiast or a guitarist or whatever it is um so the bloke who played eddie um apparently they may have used like a a hand double as well on, on some of the more intricate bits but for the most part his like hand positioning is like spot on like I'm pretty sure he actually learned how to play like the majority of the song which is just amazing like that's so good to see because it is annoying when you see someone like who doesn't know how to play guitar show it like on a film and we're supposed to just pretend that they're playing the right chords when they're blatantly not you know it's stuff that non-guitarists wouldn't know probably and, you know, same for if someone was, like, reloading a gun. I don't have any military experience, but one of my friends does. And uh, I think we were playing a game once, and they reloaded a um, magazine of an AK-47 in a way that just made him so angry. He was like, they don't work like that. That's not how it happens. So just, like, the attention to detail for that is fantastic. And even if they do sort of use shots where it cuts out Eddie's face you just see the hands moving and it's a stunt double even so that's still good because it sort of satisfies nerds like myself 
and then also for the sound i know like the the drums and everything and the vocals of the actual track end up coming in in the background but when it starts and he just does that opening riff the the fact that it's not just a rip-off straight from the album they have actually recorded someone be it eddie or, or sorry the actor who plays eddie or anybody else uh playing it it's it's a different sounding version to what's off the album which keeps you in the scene longer it doesn't take you straight out of it so then even when the rest of the track does come in you know the drums the vocals and everything it's um it's a bit sort of uh, more it keeps you in the in the moment better than if they just straight away started doing it as a soundtrack do you know what i mean so okay yeah so in other words the fact that it sounds different to the album starts the that it keeps us on the diegetic playing field so if you've heard me speak another podcast diegetic is when whatever sounds you hear come from within the scene and non-diegetic is when sounds come from outside of the scene i.e soundtracks <clears throat> oh god sorry i made a uh a, <laughs> a vegan chocolate milkshake um and i just took a sip of it and then i i had to pause then because um i was gonna do a chocolatey belch um that was the oh god there's so many great uh, shots of Eddie playing the guitar where it's like these big sort of sweep. I've been to a lot of gigs in my life, right? Like I said in the other part one of this podcast, I am a metalhead. So I've been to many, many gigs and, um, you know, live music and stuff. And there's loads of like sweeping camera shots. Like a lot of the direction of, of Eddie in this scene playing the guitar are straight out of the sort of direction and camera work that you would see on, you know, any sort of live performance not necessarily just metal i'm sure adele uses similar shit or ed sheeran or whatever so it's great it's great that they're adapting to that style of filming and that genre and then you know what 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 an excellent track they've picked this like thrashy metallica high tempo you know get just get your heart pounding sort of thing because then at the same time as this is happening you've got max being chased by vecna so obviously like high tension there matches the adrenaline shot that is this song and you've got um the jocks chasing um lucas's sister and that i can't remember her name so you got all these things that incite adrenaline so what a perfect soundtrack of metal plus Having a dude shredding guitar with red lightning in the background? Yeah, it's pretty fucking metal. Okay. Master! Master! Um, it just occurred to me as well, something that I wanted to say is not only is it a great song for all the reasons I just said in terms of like the adrenaline and it fits Eddie's character absolutely perfectly, it's also a little bit um, ironic for Vecna because... You know, sort of later on in the episode, it, we've already found out Vecna's backstory in terms of like who he is and what he's doing and that kind of thing. But later on in the episode, we do find out that he's literally responsible for everything that's ever happened bad-wise in terms of like the upside down coming to the uh, Hawkins in the real world, right? He literally is the master of puppets. So... I love it when a plan comes together. I love as well that like Dustin's, you know, he's vibing to the music and shit. And then when he notices the bats, he's like, you know, T minus thirty seconds, twenty seconds, ten seconds, and like the whole time he's like counting down. <coughs> sorry, he's counting down those seconds before the bats will get there. Eddie sort of looks at him like, okay, I quickly need to finish this solo. <laughs> 
<laughs> and just like rips into the master and puppets solo. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I might die soon, but uh, I gotta finish this solo, man. <laughs> so good. And then I, I love. Um, I don't know if it was his choice uh, as an actor or whatever, but like after they only sort of narrowly escaped the bats and locked themselves in the trailer. Dustin's like, dude, most metal ever. And like jumping up and down and cheering and stuff. And Eddie's sort of like, oh, yeah. <laughs> He's got like this exhausted, panicked, like, oh my God. Kind of like <laughs> thing going on where like he wants to like cheer and celebrate with Dustin. But at the same time, he's like trying to not have a panic attack. <laughs> oh, it's just so good. I love that scene. It's, it's fantastic. So then we're going to cut to um, Hopper and the gang uh, doing their thing back in the Russian prison because, you know, why escape a prison just to break back in? I mean, don't worry, they justified it. I'm just being silly. Uh, but they use a... I, I'm going to call it a trope, but it's a good trope. I'm not, am I peeking this microphone? Breaking? Breaching? can't remember what the term is. Okay, if I've just... I don't know. Okay, yeah, that fucked it. My bad. Um, <clears throat> so, they use a trope that I think is a good trope, but it is um, used, you know, often enough. Uh, it's a way to keep suspense from the audience by um, keeping them going, well, what is it? What's the answer? And it's to use uh, foreign languages. So it only works if you're ignorant like me and you can't speak foreign languages. Uh, so the the example that I'm using here in Stranger Things is there's that Russian guard who's like clinging on to his last few breaths of life. And Yuri, being the only member of that little trio that breaks back in who can speak Russian, asks him questions. So Hopper and Joyce are like, uh, what happened where's the monster, blah, 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 and then Yuri's asking him, the guy's replying in Russian, and then we have to wait for Yuri to translate it back into English. I was going to say into American just then, but that's not a language they stole it from us. Just kidding. Um, yeah, so it's just a way, because then, because he'll, Hopper will be like, what happened? Yuri's like, what that's my Russian impression. Like, what happened? In Russian. And then the Russian responds, and it's all on that actor to sort of um, keep the level of suspense and tension and intrigue for the audience. Because if he looks horrified and he says something in Russian, you don't necessarily need to understand what he's saying. You just know whatever he said is bad because the way he delivers it, his expression, tone of voice, all that kind of stuff. So then you're like, oh, he said some he said some bad news. He didn't say all oh, the monsters all jumped in the porthole back to the upside down and went home. He said something bad. So then when Yuri then translates it, you're like, yep, great. He just confirmed the bad. Thank you. So it's a nice little uh, trickety trope thing there. Um, but it's it's a good one. So cutting back to uh, Dustin and Eddie in the trailer. That's just sort of under battery from the... <laughs> Battery, another Metallica song. Can we get a battery? Um, anyway, it's under constant barrage, we'll say, so I don't get sidetracked again. Uh, by the bats. Bats. Battery. Battery! Um, <laughs> so it's under barrage from the bats. So the fact that they are surrounded by these, you know, hundreds of thousands or however many it is bats, uh, they're stood back to back. 
and they're spinning around slowly in a circle so that they can sort of, you know, constantly be checking everything around them. And then the camera is spinning around them too. So that their movement and the camera movement really conveys to the audience that they are literally surrounded and possibly kind of screwed. So my heart really started to sink when um, Eddie has that moment where he cuts the rope in between the Upside Down and Hawkins and says that he's buying more time. It's partly the insane performance from Dustin, like really screaming uh, for his friend to like sort of snap out of his bout of heroism. Um, but you do sort of just get a, a sense of dread from it. Um, and, you know, obviously we'll find out later on what what happens to him. Oh, there is a moment earlier on, just before that scene, where uh, Nancy and uh, Steve and everybody get, you know, sort of uh, ensnared, we'll say, by Vecna's vines. And my only sort of issue with that happening so early on is it feels like they're then out of the game for a while. I know they had like quite a lot to do earlier on in, in the series, especially that uh, seventh episode. Like, they have been the focal point of a lot of it. Um, but one of the amazing things about these last few episodes is that, like, everybody gets something to do. Like, I was going to wait to comment on it, but, like, um, you know, like, in the grand scheme of who actually sort of is, is shouldering a lot of responsibility in things, characters like Lucas aren't particularly, or maybe characters like Will aren't particularly, but they are given their chances to shine in different ways. So, for example, Will gets his... Uh, moment to sort of uh, express his feelings um, you know sort of come out of the closet a little bit which is really lovely and really wholesome and then Lucas basically this is what I was going to wait to comment on because it hasn't happened as of yet in this episode he gets his chance to shine in the sense that he gets like a proper like old school fist fight action sequence type moment against that jock dude uh, so you know, like they will get their moments to shine, and he gets some 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 good juicy bits to do, despite the fact he's not really shouldering a lot of the heavy lifting. In the same way that like you know the team, who are supposed to be hunting down and killing Vecna, or uh, you know Eleven is by sort of trying to help Max, or Max is herself by trying to bait Vecna and, and X Y Z. A lot of these people are sort of more obviously shouldering a lot of the the kind of responsibility of it. They do a really good job of like. Um, upping the, the the danger so like it seemed like such a well-conceived plan you know like they had so many angles they had so many uh, procedures and phases you know like um a group of them would achieve something make us some sort of signal to contact you know the team that was in the upside down or the upside down contact the team that was in real world hawkins they had so many things set up you're like oh this is such a a, a well-angled plan they um and and then when Vecna says to Max, well, he's invading her prom memory, he's like, you don't think I see everything that you're doing? You know, he, in terms of, like, he's already trapped Nancy and Steve and Robin, and, you know, he knows what Max and Lucas are up to. Like, he, he basically sort of reveals that, like, I knew what was going on this whole time, and now you're screwed kind of thing. Uh, so... You know, it creates that like, oh shit! There's like all of a sudden there's peril. Um, so it's good. It's a, it's a good um, writing tool because you know otherwise we would have just had like this sort of 
there wouldn't have been any stakes. It would have just been too easy for the heroes to do it. So it's nice that they write in a chance for Vecna to sort of flex his muscles a little bit. And then, you know, Eleven comes along and saves the day. I just want to quickly comment on the costume or character design of Vecna. You know, I feel like there's a bit of an obsession these days with, you know, like uh, sort of muscular physiques. You know, in the sense that you have Marvel's everywhere, you know, DC's everywhere, all the heroes are hench, but then all, all the villains are hench as well, and it sort of seems like they can only produce... And this isn't a slight on Marvel or DC, but just sort of generally speaking, it's, it does seem like a lot of the time for a villain to sort of truly be uh, intimidating, spe especially when they're like some otherworldly, demonic kind of villain. Like, they're always, like, sort of hench. You know, like Predator is hench. I mean, I know it was like in the 80s. It's not very sort of current anymore. Um, I can't think of too many other examples, to be honest with you. But I know they're there. Like, if you... Okay, Darkseid, Thanos, they're all hench. They're all, like, huge. Um, so you would sort of almost expect, like, Vecna to have, you know, big deltoids and big pecs and stuff. But he's actually, like, quite a slender dude uh, or demon or whatever. Um you know so and then you just rely on jamie campbell bowers insane like vocal performance underneath all that makeup but then the way he will sort of slowly move his body his his movement his characterization of vecna's movement and he did it as well when he was still in you know number one slash henry mode as the orderly before he you know sort of got struck by lightning and turned into this demonic creepy thing um but his movement is very, uh, what I would call sustained, which is a drama center London term, which sort of basically just means, uh, you know, sort of slow, almost gliding. Um, it's not quick and sort of strong. It's like slow and, and you know, it's, it's yeah, sort of a sustained gliding movement. Um, it's kind of hard to explain without being able to physically show you. Either way. So you're relying on his... His creepy stare, his physical characterization, his use of voice. And yeah, they are obviously applying like uh, FX to his voice to sort of lower it a couple of octaves and make it a bit more atmospheric and booming and bassy and all that stuff. But still, he has to supply the um, the starting point for those effects to be able to, you know, manipulate his voice even further. So, and then, you know, the general sort of design of him of Vecna as well, you know, it's all sort of, it's a bit leathery, but slimy, and it's very, like, tentacly, you've got all these weird tentacle kind of tendon-looking things from his shoulders up to his, uh, the top of his neck, he's obviously got that enormous taloned, clawy sort of uh, left hand that he uses to, you know, sort of possess and kill people with, and you know, it just looks very haggard and creepy. Um, but I like that it's... That he is still sort of slender. You know, he's not like this... There's so much about him is... An intimidating force of nature or an intimidating presence in and of itself. That you don't need to then rely on the trope of... He's also physically intimidating just by his sort of sheer size. So, uh, yeah, it's just sort of what I wanted to comment on that I noticed about that is... He doesn't need any of that, and it's nice that they're not resorting to that. And there's a, a cool editing thing as well. Editing in terms of, like, sequence, the sequence in which scenes are presented to you, right? So we know that Eleven is in um, Max's memories as well, trying to find 
where exactly Max and, and Vecna are so that she can step in and save the day. So she, um, you know, right when Vecna's about to use his taloned hand thing and, and you know, kill Max, she, uh, you know, uses the force and uh, pulls Vecna away. And then there's a, so the, but, uh, so the editing point, sorry, is the fact that we haven't, gone back to Eleven finding Max in uh, her memories for quite some time. There's been a lot of things in between the last time we saw Eleven and now, which sort of gives the audience a chance to uh, kind of forget where she is and what she's doing so that when she does show up and save the day, it's even more impactful because you're like, oh my God, thank God she was there. I thought Max was going to get it. Um, and then there's a nice uh, sort of slow-mo reveal of her as she struts out like using uh, her powers on Vecna where it sort of starts uh, on her feet and then like pans up to see her looking badass and stuff um, which is you know it's a it's a lot cooler to sort of although we know it's her and we know she's there and everything and we know quite obviously that it's her feet kind of thing it's just a cooler way to do a slow reveal on the character even when we know full well who it is than to just cut straight to hey it's Eleven's face do you know what I mean what a character arc they give Eddie as well, you know, he's introduced to us as this sort of like almost down and out rebel without a cause, but then at the same time a sweetheart, like he has a really nice sweet moment with, um, uh, what's her name, the cheerleader woman who dies in the first episode, um, you know, they have a real like nice chemistry sweet moment before she does Popper clogs, and he's like this cool big brother character to Dustin when Steve's not around, because Steve's also a cool big brother character to Dustin, and uh, you know, and then they sort of said they had a monologue before where he spoke about he didn't know what to do, so he ran away when uh, the cheerleader was dying, um, and you know he and he said to Steve that him and Dustin aren't heroes, you know, so and we have these little flashbacks uh, in. The this scene just there where he decides to turn around and face the bats after like getting knocked off his uh, push bike. So they 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 give us enough to make us like him, but then they give us enough to sort of show that he's maybe not the bravest guy, and then they give us even more to sort of give him a, a shot of redemption. And you know, it's just it's just nice. There's so many good character arcs in this, like. Vecna being such a well fleshed out villain with like sort of a genuine set of motives and plan for what they want to achieve you know um, Max sort of coming full circle with uh, processing the loss of Billy uh, even Papa and the other Doctor sort of coming full circle with what their whole uh, intentions and plans and things were regarding um, what they had that sort of treatment of Eleven and, and the other students and the other numbered kids, I should say, as opposed to students. Uh, you know, there's just so so many good fleshed out story arcs and and things in this. And, and Eddie's in particular, considering they only have one season to work with him, it's it's good. Yeah, and shout out, I was going to comment, I sort of started to comment on this earlier, but shout out to Lucas getting that like genuine just old I just to me it looks old school in the sense of like it's just a proper gnarly fist fight between two people just going at it and you know we know that he's pretty much physically outgunned you know the the jock is older he's uh bigger stronger 
you know, he's just pumped full of rage and anger at anyone associated with Hellfire, you know, the Hellfire Club. Um, but, you know, Lucas is just fighting on with, like, valor to try and save not only his friends, but ultimately the world. And he's really sort of doing his, his utmost. You know, at the same time, he doesn't want to, like, you know, do genuine serious damage to the jock but he knows that he needs to like stop this guy from messing up the whole plan which could you know in turn destroy the world so uh it's just good you know good bit of sort of uh, fight choreography going on in there um and what often makes a good fight on film or tv uh better is when there are emotional stakes to it so there's a few shots of lucas where he is looking a bit you know, sort of fatigued or tired or like out punched or outgunned kind of thing. Um, and when he gets hit with that vase, he sort of holds his hand up to almost be like, wait, 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 kind of thing um, to the jock. And then the jock just sort of storms over to him and, and goes in for more. And then we cut away somewhere else. But the fact that we, there's little moments throughout like that, or like, you know, Lucas's expressions and things were like, oh man, like he's really struggling here. He's a proper David and Goliath, Goliath kind of a, a fight happening whereas if it was just two people sort of you know like you see in the UFC or any boxing match where it's two people that won't ever give you any inclination that they're struggling or they're worried or they're panicked or anything you're just like oh this is two absolute hard nuts going at it that's great for UFC and boxing but when it's in a film and there's narrative and there's character stakes and there's emotion and everything we need to see you know, maybe a bit of character struggle or or anything like that. It just sort of helps. Um, it helps the fight have purpose instead of just being a fight and an action sequence for fight's sake. When you drip feed in um, emotion and and dynamic, it 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 just it, it adds to the story as opposed to just being a fight for fight's sake. The fight adds to the narrative and the story. So, uh, flashing forward a little bit to when Wagner has basically captured L, and he's talking to her about you know. Uh, what happened to him after she sent him into the Upside Down. Um, and this is what I meant in the previous pod, where so much of the writing and everything is just exemplary. Uh, in, from All the way from season one through to this season, where there was so... I, I, mentioned, I think I mentioned it in the last pod, if not, I meant to, where there's so many sort of little bits that might seem either not necessarily connected or that relevant and then you know this season really joins all the dots so we have like uh vecna using the the shadow as the russians call it that those particle sort of things uh he manipulates them into the shape of the mind flayer so before we were well some of us me may have been like oh is is vecna and the mind flayer different is you know, is it is it a different evil that Vecna's just joined into or is part of? And then where he actually changes the mind flare into the... Sorry, changes the particles into the shape of the mind flare. We're like, oh, he created that. He started that. Uh, and it's because of his obsession with the... And, you know, and that's been a sort of ever-present thing since... I think it's, in, I think it's referenced in season one, but is definitely given attention in season two and three. Uh, and it's all because of his uh, obsession with those Black Widow spiders that he finds in the attic when he's a little kid, which we don't really get into until, I think, episode 7 of season 4, but 
at the same time you're like oh he just likes spiders you know and then you might think that's just like a random bit of sort of not particularly relevant information but it ends up being commented on in season nine uh, sorry episode nine in the sense that it's the inspiration for the shape of the mind flare so that it's just brilliant writing where they weren't just giving us these things willy-nilly they were actually planting little seeds that they would then go back to and address properly and tell us exactly what it meant that's that's good writing you know uh or then uh billy saying to 11 in i think it was season three um we've been waiting all of this is for you or or whatever he says um where at the time i was like all of what is for 11 like what are you talking about and obviously now we know that it's it's Vecner and it's been his sort of plan and his intent all along and and it's fully so he's sort of fully justified uh, in a villain's sort of sense you know in the sense that sorry what I mean not justified is in he's fully fleshed out and he's fully given motives and incentives and uh, you know, he's not just a random villain that wants power. Like, he actually is so intertwined in Eleven's story. It's it's such a good job of fleshing him out. And then to actually make it apparent that he's been the sort of be-all and end-all of everything since episode one. It's just such bloody good writing. Something I've noticed uh, this season in particular of Stranger Things is doing is, like, using false cliffhangers... So it'll like make you think that the episode's ended or whatever. Um, and then really, it was, you know, so it'll just like black out for a bit. And then, you know, we'll we'll cut to the next thing that's happening. So, you know, when it looks like uh, all hope is lost and uh, Vecna's won and killed Max and everything after he's broken a couple of her bones, a bit rough, uh, Elle sort of snaps out of it and sends him flying and everything. And then... Yeah, so it, they do it a lot, and it's a sort of like suspense thing because, as an audience member, you're then like, "Oh no, wait, what?" Oh, and then you know the, the episode carries on. Um, I really like that. Uh, oh, what's his name? The bold geezer with the mustache who does karate with Hopper and Joyce. I really like that he gets to be the the grill master, as Hopper put it. So you know he gets a little sort of something to do, a little moment to shine. Mike gets to be the heart and like talk L back around to like consciousness. Um, Lucas just finds some, you know, he goes to the well as sports people would say, you know, and finds some like last reserves of strength. Calls upon his ancestors, as I've heard other sports people say as well, and uh, finds that last bit of power to fight back against the jock and and knock him out. It's just uh, you know everybody gets a good little. Moment to shine. I gotta admit, I did question Hopper's uh, decision to fire an AK with one hand instead of, you know, um, what's the god, you know, using his other hand to hold the barrel to stop it wobbling around. What's the word? Securing? I don't know. You get what I mean, though. It's normally how you'd fire a big gun like that, is you'd use two hands. One to sort of stabilize, stabilize it, that's the word. And the other to pull the trigger, but no, he just holds it straight out and shoots one of the Demogorgons with it. Um, And then, that's definitely Conan the Barbarian sword. That's definitely Conan's sword. I don't know why it's there, but I love that it's there. It's great. 
Uh, I, I thought initially he was going to try and take it on, like, with just his hands and feet sort of thing, you know? Just box the hell out of it somehow. Like soap in dog soldiers. Spoon, sorry. Spoon in dog soldiers. But, uh, yeah, he picks up Conan the Barbarian sword instead. And we get a nice little epic bit. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know why he would decide to try and just shoot the AK with one hand. Oh, the end of this episode is so sad. Literally, fro I'm crying now <laughs> as I record this. But literally from fucking... From Eddie onwards to the end of this episode, the first time I watched it, I was just a blubbering wreck. Oh, it's so sad. Eddie's such a good character. And as I wipe away my tears, I'll... I was just trying to find the strength to carry on with this podcast. Um, yeah, so they have a really lovely exchange um, as Eddie uh, passes. You know, they, they tell each other they love each other, which is something I'm glad they put in there because guys should be able to platonically tell their friends they love them without it being weird or anything. So it's really nice that they put that in there. Uh, and, you know, Eddie sort of comments on his own arc and sort of says, you know, I didn't run away this time and that kind of thing. And and little Gaten's performance as Dustin is so moving. You know, he loses his friend, one of his best friends there. It's so sad. And there's a, a shot of them just before it cuts away to all the stuff where it's a really, really wide shot. Um, and as he's sort of cradling Eddie's body after he's... After the life has left him, uh, he's just cradling his body in center frame, and there's, you know, a sort of a vast sea of dead bats littering the foreground, and the thunderous sky of the upside down behind them, and just the fact that it is such a wide shot with, with them being so small in the middle, um, it's as it's empty shot you know there's no warmth in there there's just dead things everywhere eddie's dead in the middle it's just an empty dark cold shot and the fact that it's pulled back and pulled away sort of leaves dustin alone in in isolation which you know reinforces the fact that he has lost someone he cares about um whereas if the camera was right up there with him it's like the audience is right up there with him so he's not entirely alone so moving it so far away uh, reinforces the sort of loneliness. <sighs> God damn. This is the best show of 2022 so far. I haven't seen anything as good. Um, you know, I loved Peaky Blinders. I even liked Boba Fett. Um, I, Better Call Saul hasn't finished yet at the point of recording this. Um, but the first seven... I've seen the first eight. Since it's come back, one episode has come back of Better Call Saul since the mid-season break. Um, I've got two more episodes left of The Boys to watch, but I haven't seen anything that's moved me as much or entertained me as much as season four of Stranger Things yet. It's it's the best show of the year so far. I bloody love it. I'm going to carry on watching the rest of this episode now and probably blubber again and start crying. And then, uh, God, Max is pretty graphic hardcore passing you know where she's she's had all her limbs broken she's been blinded her performance there and 
the guy who plays Lucas, his performance there. It's the best he's been in Stranger Things. Um, you know, he's really sort of grown as a as an actor and, and really come along like leaps and bounds. He's great in this season. Um, but you really feel the pain and anguish as they're all like losing their friends and stuff. It's... Oh, God. But the makeup that they've done for Max in that scene is great. You know, like the grayed out um, contact lenses she's wearing and the blood tears that she's got down her face it's just gnarly i gotta say as well the jock probably gets one of the gnarliest deaths you know he gets ripped apart by the uh portal opening he's ripped in half by that and like as much of an asshole as he was that's probably the gnarliest death in the whole thing it sort of like turned my guts a little bit when i saw it i was just like oof, that looks like a rough way to go stranger things isn't messing around anymore it ain't about kids anymore it's some grown-up shit now it breaks my freaking heart as well that the news reporter says about um, Eddie Munson still being the lead culprit in the murders um, and the leader of Hellfire and stuff, even after all those earthquakes and that. And, like, no one in the town knows that he actually sacrificed himself to keep Vecner distracted long enough so that the rest of the group could do what they needed to do so that he didn't, you know take over the world. I mean, he ended up having four deaths and creating those portals anyway. But, um, yeah, the point is Eddie sacrificed himself for a town that hates him uh, and will continue to hate him. And so he's, as viewers and fans, we know that his, his death is justified as sad and tragic as it is, but he should be remembered as a hero and he's not. Um, which is just tragic very tragic because he was one of my favorite characters he was my little spirit animal man i'm a metalhead he's a metalhead you know misfit misfit Ugh, tragic tragic stuff i like as well that with the sort of final half an hour or so of this episode they they don't just sort of leave it as you know like the things have happened and now it's finishing like they give it a real chance for sort of loose ends to be tied up and, and things, you know, be it the characters uh, donating things to the the shelter you know, and, the, and the sort of charity uh, of the people affected by the <sighs> sorry, the Vecna earthquakes and that kind of thing or um, you know, uh, sort of visiting Max in hospital and everything like that, like they it's, you know, it's sometimes in shows or films, after the, the main sort of plot lines of the story are, are finished things can either just end or they can sort of only be like loosely um uh tied up and, and brought to a close but they don't rush anything with this series at all they just make sure everything has had an adequate chance to be thoroughly fleshed out and and given a chance to breathe basically it's good it just makes for better a better experience it's nice to know what happens to them afterwards, what the aftermath is, how is the town affected, how are the characters affected, what are the relationship dynamics, how are they going to move forward, uh, all that kind of stuff. And if anything, it means that you have to spend less time laying that groundwork in the next season, you can just sort of, you know, hit the ground running with it. Oh, Dustin's conversation with Mr. Munson absolutely kills me as well, I've got tears streaming down my face right now. Yeah, he sort of says what I said earlier in the sense that, you know, 
even though the town hated him, he still fought and died to defend it. But I really like the dialogue choice, uh, where he says, you know, in, in sort of in the face of it all, and even at the end, he never stopped being Eddie, never stopped being himself. So I guess it's just like a, a, a something that you know people can take away from from Stranger Things in the sense of like you know always be yourself no matter what's going on no matter what's happening never stop being you always be true to yourself and that's sort of the best thing that you can do um and it's a really sweet tender moment and I really like that they let Mr. Munson Eddie's uncle uh actually cry about it because too often it's it's changing now but too often in in media, men aren't allowed to express emotion or cry, so it's nice that they let him cry about it. But then they do sort of, you know, where where those two, as in Dustin and and Mister Munson, don't really have like uh, a relationship. They don't really know each other, um, and as well, you know, he is this sort of rugged older man. They they don't look at each other while they have this conversation. So that's interesting staging and direction there um to just sort of like let the conversation happen without getting too intimate it makes sense for you know mr munson's age and and the period that this is set and everything that it wouldn't be like this sort of soppy eye to eye uh deep chat it's deep enough you know they don't need to look at each other and then that scene finishes with um a shot of both of their backs and the cameras sort of tracking slowly away which is sort of just the audience gently walking backwards out of the room and just leaving that sort of heartbreaking, heartfelt moment between Dustin and, and Mr. Munson, you know, just sort of leaving it between them, letting them have that chance to grieve, as it were, as the audience sort of slowly backs away. And the reunion between Hopper and Earl is equally moving. It's just, oh, just a blubbery wreck for the last half hour of this episode. Um, but it's a very sweet reunion. Um, as soon as Elle, like, went to shut, walks into a bedroom door and goes to shut the door with her powers but leaves it a bit open, I was like, oh, it's reminiscent of when Hopper used to get mad at her about that. Uh, and then obviously she, when he walks into the room and she says it to him, I get it open three inches. It's just so sweet. Like I said before, excellent writing from the Duffer Brothers because they're doing callbacks, they're tying up loose ends, they're making previously sort of re un not relevant seeming plot points be relevant again. It's just, ah, uh, what a well-constructed script. Okay, so that's it. That's the end. Um, and what I love about the way it finishes is, like I said, they, they took the time to wrap up character arcs, relationship arcs, story arcs, all of the arcs, uh, to then make sure that we can just springboard into season five without you know a lot of faff like there is always you know a sort of slow um introduction where the characters when season five will start what are they doing that type of thing but a lot of the immediate questions are answered at the end of that season and where they where the doofer brothers have already said season five will be the final one it's nice that um, there a lot of the the mystery and everything has been answered, and we could just kick on with season five and hopefully have a an insanely good season. 
without too much faff or further explanation like where they've left this season you know like with the the upside down bleeding into hawkins you know we've got that like ashy snow falling in some of the fields are uh, turning dark and dying and there's that red thundery smoke storm thing spewing up it's it's great because you're like oh my god we're, we're just gonna hit the ground running with season five and and you know like this it's sort of like the chips are down like it's just gonna be the team versus vecna let's fucking go um i can't wait for it uh it's gonna be great this it's oh what a show Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Um, I hope I shedded, shed, shedded, did, 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 did some light on what can make a good TV show or film uh, work in terms of you know story beats, sound, cinematography, whatever it may be. Hopefully, I you know hopefully it was entertaining for you and all of that jazz. Uh, please do rate, review, subscribe on whichever platform it is you're listening to it. It helps me out. Um, tell your friends about the pod as well. The pod Tell your friends about the podcast as well. Get them listening to it. Or don't. I can't tell you what to do. Bye.